0: We're going to be in the book of Acts. It's uh, a book that was written by uh, a physician named Luke. You guys probably know this if you've been here very long, but Luke or, um, Acts seventeen twenty-two through 34 is going to be our text today. We're going to look at this section of scripture, and then we are going to pray. So would you read with me? Acts 17, 20 through 22 through 34. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you were very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription. To the unknown God, what therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward Him and find Him. Yet He's actually not far from each one of us, for in Him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed His offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone We will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom were also Dionysius the Areopagite and a woman named Damaris and others with them. Pray with me. God, we are opening up your word right now. We believe that this is something that you have written by the the pens of man carried along by your Holy Spirit, that that same Spirit could speak into our hearts wherever we're at with faith right now in this room. So I pray, would you use my feeble words and some simple meditations on your word to bring about transformation in our hearts, that this room would be filled with joy, knowing that the God of the universe loves us, He wants us, and wherever we're at, I pray that you would help us see Jesus alive and well in all of his beauty a little bit more at the end of tonight. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. Well, it's, it's been said that every human being is a meaning maker. Every human being is a meaning maker. What that means is everyone, everyone is searching for meaning. To be human means you need something bigger, something greater than yourself to actually point your life at. Otherwise you don't know what you're doing when you wake up in the morning. You don't know why you're in your vocation, I mean, no one works just because they had some spare time, right? We all have this, this goal, this vision for life, and most of the time it's the preferable one. It's the one that we could actually work our way towards. It's the one that validates whatever inner resonance we ourselves find meaningful. And In our text today, we see the Apostle Paul who had experienced the risen Jesus Christ face to face, speaking to some city dwellers in Athens and and speaking to them about where they were finding their meaning. David Foster Wallace, one of our most celebrated American authors of the 20th century, wrote this. You get to consciously decide what has meaning and what doesn't. In the day-to-day trenches of life, there is actually no such thing as atheism. There is no such thing as not worshipping. Everyone worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And pretty much anything you worship will eat you alive. David Foster Wallace, he's been named one of the, uh, really one of the greatest American authors of the 20th century. And he had some profound insight into what it means to be human. And he says this, essentially, that every single one of us is a meaning maker trying to put and infuse meaning into our lives. I mean, regardless of if you think life is utter chaos, You're living your life with the telos, with the end, knowing that life is utter chaos, so I can do whatever I want. That's still the end meaning. Now the point is this. Humans were created to live for something bigger, to devote ourselves to something. In David Foster Wallace's words, he introduces this word worship, which might ring true to some of your ears, but to some of you might just sound really religious, spiritual, churchy, Really, what he means is something to devote ourselves to. Something that we feel like if we pour into, we get something in return that is satisfying. I wonder what that is for us. Because all of us have an object of devotion what we believe will most fulfill us that we live for. I'll be honest, two months ago, when we started a church over here on, on the west side in Westwood proper, um, that church plant in some of my worst moments has become an object of devotion for me. It starts to consume thoughts. I'm sitting playing with my boys and I can't help but think of what we need to do a few weeks down the line and how we need to prepare in light of it. And it's, it, it can start to eat up my very presence in all of these other spheres. And the way that we begin to know that our object of of devotion is beginning to rule us is when it starts to bleed into other spheres within our lives, right? I mean, if you're married and work starts to come home too much, you start to realize that this this presence isn't really there even though you're present. If If you're a student, you start to realize that school maybe is taking away from the relationships that you've had. And on and on and on it goes. In Acts 17, we see the Apostle Paul engage with men and women who had sought meaning in many forms. And they're in this place called the Areopagus, is where they would just come together and talk about stuff like that. What's the purpose of life? What are we living for? And we learn why the search for meaning draws us to so many different sources. Really, we're we're seeking to grasp at life to the fullest. Here's what we see. First, we see the echoes of idols. The echoes of idols. You see, the search for meaning isn't one way. It's not as though we just decide what to devote ourselves to, we sense from the world profound, magnetic drawings to our hearts. I mean, it's the whole purpose of marketing. It's to draw you into something, to say, you need this, you really want this, you should have this. And suddenly, this thing that we've been living without our entire life suddenly becomes an object that we need, right? I mean, about the time, like, June, July starts to come around, in the Apple Worldwide Developers Conference, rumors start breaking. Suddenly, your iPhone 7 isn't enough when the rumors about iPhone 8 come out and how it can like, make you dinner and all of the things that we should never, ever. You get my point. Look at verses 22 and 23 with me. So, Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription To an unknown God. So, the Apostle Paul, this man who had a profound experience with Jesus, devoted his life to traveling around. Um, the Middle East and parts of Asia and all the way into Athens and eventually Rome. Goes through Athens. And last week, if you were here, you talked about how the city of Athens was filled with idols, right? I mean, it was filled with this kind of devotion that was so diverse. People had their own little thing that they had devoted themselves to. And back then it was represented with a simple statue. And some authors, I I think you, you heard last week, have written about how it was easier in Athens to find an idol than it was a human being. I mean, we're talking profound purposes and meanings that people had sent themselves after. And and Paul, as he's waiting around for a couple of his buddies, starts going around and telling people, hey, you know what you're really searching for? It's, It's not what this thing is about. What if there's something beyond that? And he starts to tell them about the God that he worships. And these people start to say, we want to hear a little bit more about that. And they invite him actually into a really influential little sphere in that culture, the Areopagus. It's translated Mars Hill. Um, Really, it was just a place where philosophers would come and just talk about all sorts of things, purposes in life. And they say, hey. Tell them about what you were telling us the other day. And so he stands up and he says, Men of Athens, as I've been around, I've seen that you're really religious. And commentators don't quite know if it's a compliment, like he's trying to butter him up a little bit, and he's saying, you're very devout people. Or if it's kind of more a backhanded remark, it's like, you guys are real religious, aren't you? see it all over the place. And I I think probably he's leaving it just ambiguous enough that they would hear it as, oh yeah, we are, right? We're really spiritual around here. But he leaves the door open to say, now let me tell you what you're really searching for. And the other thing that's peculiar about this is he says, as I was walking around, I saw all of these objects of worship. And We have that experience here in Los Angeles, right? I mean, we're like fish swimming in water, so we don't really see it all that well. But when someone gets transplanted into a new city or a new context, it's just light as day. I mean, what are billboards for? Right? You see movies, because we value entertainment. We value being entertained. There's something about just like sitting down and letting someone else do the work for us. Uh, we see fashion, right, right around where I live. There, there's literally this high-end designer on Rodeo Drive that I'm pretty sure he, like, owns the two billboards on Santa Monica Boulevard because it's always just some rotation of what they have in stock and some semi-inspiring quote that you're not quite sure what it means, but you feel a little fuzzy inside after you see it. And sometimes it's just, just overt. It's not even trying to hide with a billboard. How many of you, I mean, has anybody seen, there was a, there was a billboard probably two months ago or so for uh, sugar models. Yeah, I see some eyes start going like, what is that? Um, it's basically a, a sugar daddy dating service. If you don't know what that means, don't Google it. It basically <laughs> means if you're, if you're a man who has uh, a lot of money, You can find a woman who really wants to have a relationship with someone with a lot of money, and they have uh, some form of relationship that somehow is transactional, yet not prostitution. So, right there on billboards, I mean, I'm so glad my sons aren't like, what's that, daddy? The point is, you see idols in transit far easier than you do in temples. You see idols in transit far easier than you do in temples. We think of temples as the place where you go and experience the sacred. But culture, culture is swimming with worship. That word that David Foster Wallace uses is a very important biblical word. It means the sense of devotion. And Paul says, I can tell you guys really have this resonance deep down that you're searching for, you're feeling for. And then he even goes so far as to say, I I was walking by and I saw one that said, to an unknown God? I mean, that must have been baffling to Paul. Paul. And so you see, you see the idol with a little altar right at its feet where you could go drop some money and their belief was legitimately that as you sacrifice to this idol, this stone, that there's a God behind it who will honor you or at least leave you alone, right? So if you have crops, you go and you give some money there and then you would have some crops that would grow for you, at least that, that you wouldn't have like some terrible devastation that would knock out a whole harvest for you and make you homeless. You could go and, and go to the fertility idol and drop some money down and believe that you then would be able to have children. And then he comes to one that is, looks probably just the same and says to an unknown God. I mean, how peculiar is that, right? It's essentially this belief that says, all right, we know this God and this God and this God, hundreds of gods, thousands of gods, but some guy was probably a genius and said, you know, there's probably another god or two out there. And if you don't give him what he wants, you never know what disaster might come your way. So it's my idol. I'll take 10%. You get the coverage of an unknown idol. This is basically the onset of the insurance industry. (laughs) Kidding. If you're in insurance, it's legitimate. There are altars all over this city. And he uses this opening and says, I I want to share something with you. Because everyone here standing in Areopagus is very religious, very spiritual, is longing for something. And by his grace and just plain old kindness, I think he sent me just to share with you the good news. I mean, before, before we go on, I really want everybody to feel like we, we're no different than the Athenians. It's really easy to slip into this modern mindset, like technology has changed so much and provided so much for us and given us so much security, and, and there's food in our cupboards. What are you, We don't worship anything like that anymore, right? Have you ever been to a football game? I mean, I don't know where else it is socially appropriate for large grown men to be shirtless, painted from head to toe in their team color, and it's like negative 10 degrees outside, and there's like this reverence, like those are the devoted people, right? And then they're walking out crying as their team is just lost. They had so much riding on a game. I'm one of... I'm someone who is that devoted to Seattle sports, so that one was personal. Our smartphones. Average person spends two and a half hours a day on a smartphone. Two and a half hours a day. You do not, it's, not, it's not saying that this little thing in our pockets is like something that we're bowing down to, but what this opens to us is amazing. Right? And be careful, lest that two and a half hours goes to five hours, begins to consume... For me, recently, I have discovered, uh, well, let me put it this way. Two weeks ago, I tried fasting from coffee. Anybody ever tried that? Uh, I love coffee from Seattle, as I've said multiple times, and I'll say multiple more times. But we just are coffee snobs by nature. And I was starting to feel like I needed coffee just to get up to, like, normal it was no longer beneficial it was like a divergence where i'd wake up and i would say if if i don't get coffee right now i don't think i can physically open my eyes and i needed coffee to get back to zero so i was like this is probably not the way i there's i should probably fast and suddenly these these things rise in my heart that aren't saying you can't go without coffee you need coffee you love the flavor of coffee what rose in my heart was you aren't going to be able to function for a whole day. You're not going to be able to work. You're not going to be able to think. You're going to need to just sleep all day. You're going to need ibuprofen for that headache. You see, it's not the thing in and of itself. It's all the fears that rise, the weight that's behind what we do. That's where our devotion, that's where our our worship lies. See, we're no different. What we're all drawn to is the deepest meaning in life. We'll begin to bend all of our other duties, responsibilities, and delight toward that object of our devotion. Religious or not, we're all worshipers. So it begs the question, how to tell where your worship lies. Well, what do you go to when life's hard? What do you think about when you have nothing else to do? Uh, An f- old philosopher named Blaise Pascal said, all of humanity's problems stem from man's inability to sit quietly in a room alone. We can almost be driven mad by that kind of freedom with nothing to think about. When are you most likely to treat people poorly? You see, all of these things begin to dive down beneath those layers that we're so used to just living on the surface of, and say, when this is threatened by another person and you start to treat them poorly, it's probably a sign of something. And so Paul jumps in because the reason that that we have so much bound up in this almost religious experience in everyday life is because there are profound echoes in the world. It's almost as though we can't see, but we can hear things. And we make life about the echo rather than following the echo to the source, right? Because all these things that we're talking about are good things. I mean, family, work, enjoying an amazing thing like coffee, a phone, sports. But we stop short of following the echo to the source. And we make an idol when we make life about that echo. Yet the echoes aren't the source. That's the reason that the echoes mislead us into idolatry, because the echoes are not the source. Look, at me, look with me at, at verse 24 through 26. This is how Paul begins to turn it to the source from whom the echoes come. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. Paul confronts these prominent forms of worship that the Athenians had shown and that he knew all human beings exemplified. And he says, this isn't it. Let me tell you about the one who's behind those things. And he lays out three fundamental truths that human beings are prone to forget regardless of whether it was 70 AD or 2017. The three fundamental truths that he lays out. First, that God is creator and sovereign over creation. God is creator and sovereign over creation. He said, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, Unabashedly, it says, You and I are here because we have a creator. The one who made everything, including you and I. The one who sustains everything, including you and I. He's present and he's there. When we get so bound up in these sources of meaning that fall short of him, we forget. We forget we're blind or we're ignorant to him. Our devotion can't stop at created things. So God is creator and sovereign over creation. Second, that God is not controlled by us. That God is not controlled by us. Paul said this, God does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything. In a place that had elaborate temples, statues all over the place. He said, these things aren't necessary. Temples were the places where humans were made right with God. And Paul says, you don't need those. He would say to us, we don't need these things to be fulfilled inside. We don't need these things to be who we were created to be, to be the best version of ourselves." And, and the other thing is, is, he's not served by human hands. I mean, God's, God's not petty and codependent on us. He's not, he didn't text me beforehand and said, all right, Devin, I need you to nail this one for me. Prayer hands emoji. He doesn't need us. He's not codependent on us. And that is amazingly freeing. We can, we can hear that and be a little offended. Like, Just disregard me. If he's good and he's my maker, he'll have regard for me. We're getting there. But he's not dependent on us. And the third thing, God is gracious in his love towards us. Paul says he gives us life and breath and Everything. He gives us life. The very reason that we can sit here. The very very wiring and knitted togetherness of who we are. Gave it to us. And breath. The story of God paints a picture that God is intimately involved in the life of his world. In the life of all people. And Paul here says, God gave you life and breath. And then he goes further to say, and everything, all those things that we enjoy, don't dare forget that those were given to us by our maker who loves us, wants to call us into relationship with him. But even when we refuse, Christian or not, when we live without him, He still gives us good things. God is creator, sovereign over creation. He's not controlled by us, and yet God is gracious in his love towards us. It's as though Paul is saying, wait a second, you don't need all this stuff, you guys. And then he invites them into the very source of all of these echoes of meaning that are bouncing around and reverberating and says, there's one who has come for us and we will never be satisfied with money, with security, with the approval of others, with sex. I mean, the irony of seeking meaning in idols, in these things that are merely echoes of what God has given us. The irony is we want them because we think they'll please us and then we give everything to please them. So if you worship money, how much is enough? More. If you worship Security, I mean, how many of us just want to make it in L.A.? If you moved here, you just want to be able to keep living here. If you worship security, you live in fear. The very thing your security is supposed to guard you from, right? If, if you worship sex, you're bound to receive loneliness. Loneliness. And so the, the irony is, as we live for these things and fall short, God is still, he's still pursuing us. And the echoes themselves, these very deeply rooted senses of meaning that we, that we place on other things, are intended to direct our hearts to the one who made us. In the story of scripture, what's revealed to us is that the ultimate good we were created for is to embrace relationship with God himself. It's what what Paul is about to invite the men and women in his audience to because you see the echoes call us to the source. Read with me in verses 26 through 28. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way towards him and find him. Yet, he's actually not far from us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. So Paul turns the script from truths about God and turns the script to us and says, this is what life is about. That somehow, even though it can feel so often like we're blind, like we're feeling our way, that he's not far. That he's at hand. That was God's intent in creating all of this was not that we would be distant from him, unable to get to him, but that's how things broke in the beginning. And Paul says, the echoes were meant to draw us to God because God is intimately involved with us. You can have purpose and a place He's allotted boundaries and places for our dwelling. So seek God because he's at hand. Take seriously what our deep heart motivations are. I mean, you guys, how easy is it to just go through life here to fight your way through traffic, to get to your job, to turn around and try and get somewhere else afterwards, to hang out with some friends, to do a little more work when you get home, to power it down, to put on some Netflix so you can fall asleep, so that you could sleep through your alarm in the morning, grab your coffee on the way out the door, and start the whole thing over again. Without ever actually looking at our hearts, we could just slip on into this stuff. And the challenge for all of us is that Paul puts before us right here in this text is what are you living for? What is it that has your deepest devotion? And chances are it's a good thing. But it's not the ultimate thing if it's not in God Himself. You see, there's one echo that proves God's nearness to us. Paul points us to the loudest echo. Look in the next couple of verses, 29 through 31. Being then God's offspring, we ought not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, the image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance got overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Paul ultimately points his listeners, and you and I, to the resurrection of Jesus as the truest confirmation of God's intent in the world. The truest echo of meaning that we're supposed to follow and not just believe about God because we believe Jesus is alive. I mean, Christian, you and I don't believe in Jesus simply because he's alive, because of the resurrection if you're here and you're a follower of Jesus, it's through the resurrection that everything about him that was spoken about him and that he said to us is validated. There's a a parable that a philosopher once told about a dark tool shed. Now, before your mind goes too far to the left, imagine with me, this tool shed, he walks in, The only thing that he can see in the pitch blackness is a hole punched right above the door and into the dark shed flows a beam of light. He can see the dust floating in the light and then disappearing as it enters into the blackness. And then he steps into the beam. And it's as though looking up the beam opened up the entire outside world to him. And he could see trees and the sky and birds and the sun 90 million miles away. And he talks about how you can stand around and see the beam of light. You can debate about whether the beam of light exists or if it's a figment of your imagination or what's happening with the dust when it appears and disappears, but then you step into the light. And it's by doing that that you see the purpose and aim of the light itself. You following me? That the experience, the resurrection is the light of heaven breaking into our dark world that can be so confusing with so much reverberating into our hearts. And the resurrection is God punching a hole and saying, look here. And Paul tells the Athenians, look to the resurrected one because it's through him that this all makes sense. And some of us here have debated about whether Jesus exists and whether he rose from the dead and if it makes sense. And even if you're here and you're a Christian, how easy is it to be looking in wonder In one moment, up at Jesus through the light, and then in the next moment, walk away into the darkness and like, I can still see the light. I'm still in proximity to the light. It's good enough, right? But the wonder and the awe and heaven being open before our eyes is gone. You see, Paul calls people Walk over, come with me. He uses the word repent. Really that means, it sounds like a loaded word. We have all sorts of meanings attached to it. Really it just means turn. Turn from this sense of meaning that you're living with that's taken root deep in your heart. Turn with me and look to this one. He's risen, he's alive, the son of God is here. And one day, judgment will come. And all the judgment will be is God making true externally what has been true internally with us. Worshiping Jesus, experiencing him, seeing him for who he is and who he said he was, and trusting in him is looking along the beam of light and, and having the world transformed around you. Not so that all of those things that we're so used to living for suddenly lose all of their appeal. Some of them do. Some of them we live with. But the invitation is to experience them. Now, as I was preparing for this, I don't know if, if you're aware, this section of Acts is actually a really famous section. Uh, Acts 17, through 34, really well known because it's the second speech that Paul gives in the book of Acts. It's extended, but it's the first one that he gives outside of a synagogue, outside of a Jewish context. And it's known as the, the breaking open in Paul's missionary journeys for him to start engaging with other, other people groups. And there's this word for it in the church. It's called contextualization. It just means taking a context and introducing the gospel to it. And so I almost prepared this talk saying, I I want collective church to know how to contextualize the gospel. I want collective church to know how to take all these truths about Jesus and make them real in the everyday of life in West LA. But I'm so prone to this and I think we are too. When we read scripture, where do we transpose ourselves in the story? Normally, we transpose ourselves over the hero, right? And you see that if if I was up here saying, collective church, let's learn to contextualize, I'd be lining us up with Paul in this story. And there could be some great pointers and great lessons for us to learn in that. It's not throwing shade on that at all. But whenever we're reading scripture, our first aim has to be, how does this speak to my needs? Because I'll tell you what, Paul was a really smart dude. I mean, smarter than probably all of us in this room, and I say that like treading softly because I know in West LA a lot of us are like PhDs and all sorts of stuff, but Paul is a smart guy, yet the only reason he can do this is because he himself had seen Jesus. He himself had looked through the beam of light and seen the wonder of heaven open before his eyes. He writes about that experience in Philippians 3. He says this. It's a letter to a church in this little town called Philippi. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Really, he just means if anyone else thinks that he has, he has the accolades that he can brag about before God, I got more of them. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Now, what Paul's saying there is, I had everything that would have ever been needed to make myself right, right before God as a Jew. Yet, when you're invited to walk with Jesus, you start seeing that everything that we could do to build our case before God meets its ultimate fulfillment in Christ. It's actually very profound that Paul said to these people in Athens, God doesn't dwell in temples. He's not served by human hands. It wasn't because he had contextualized the gospel and understood, oh, this is where they're looking. Paul was a Jew in the first century. They believed that God lived in the temple. They believed that God needed, was pleased by, and was looking to their actions to atone for their day-to-day sin in some senses. And yet somehow he flips that on his head. You see, contextualization, collective church, is not about you wisely, shrewdly, in kind of like a hipster Christianity, bohemian kind of way, like trying not to associate yourself with the church so much, so you're not a churchy person. It's not about shrewd assessment of the culture around you so much as it is an overflow of the experience you've had in Jesus. And so my hope for us today, regardless of where you're at on that spectrum of faith, is that all of us, would see the beauty of Jesus and that that light would reflect into our hearts the places, Christian or not, where we seek meaning, fulfillment, ultimate joy apart from him because I can promise you and the scriptures attest to this and the resurrection of Jesus assures us all of our deepest hopes and longings and desires find their fulfillment in him. Pray with me.